Well, good morning, CMI. I am excited to speak. We got 30 minutes. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, I thought we would do this for our roadmap. I'll tell you a little bit about myself because I know that we're not all friends. I'm a familiar face. You see me every year maybe, but you maybe don't know very much about me. So I want to tell you a little bit about myself. We're going to look at some scripture, going to add a little commentary. We'll pray, and then I want to share with you the big idea that I think God has for us today. And then finally, some practical steps because this is like a really cool target audience. We are all licensed and ordained ministers, and so it can be very specific how we apply God's message for us today. Today. So let's start. A couple things about me. Uh, I got married six years ago. I'm 31, so I am uh, enjoying life. And uh, here in December, uh, our family went from being a party of two to a party of three. We uh, welcomed home a, a little baby boy, Maximus James. And so we are enjoying uh, learning about being parents. And it is very different. Uh, teeth are showing up. They're crawling. Uh, it's really... Pretty, pretty interesting, but uh, it's interesting the questions that people have been asking me. They said, so Alex, uh, you plan on homeschooling your child, right? Well, I don't know if I thought about that, but, but no, no, I don't plan on homeschooling my child because I want my child to be a world changer, and there's nobody to reach when you're just staying at home. We're all saved here. I want to send you into... The public schools. I want to send you where there's darkness so that you can be a light, so that you can make a difference. Kind of like our Heavenly Father did with Jesus, who was in heaven. He didn't have to come to a place of darkness, but that was the mission. And so I'm excited to have a world changer and that God's honored us with the responsibility of raising a child in such a way as to make a difference. And so as we are doing our best with him, we're, we're recognizing that our ministry's changed as well because now all of a sudden we're part of the club. We have a kid, and so parents and people welcome us right on in. And my wife's joined uh, the mothers of preschoolers so that she can connect with other mothers and see what ministry opportunities are there. And so we're excited. So not only has our family increased, but our ministry has increased as God has blessed us with a child. So uh, enough about me. Here's where we want to go. Uh, it was a, probably at the end of the summer, the, about the month of May, that uh, Dennis reached out and asked if I would be willing to speak at convention. And so I agreed, and it was probably within a week of that that God brought a scripture back to my memory that I'd forgot about. And it was a, a story in the Bible that I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach on. And if they had, I didn't remember it. And so I sensed as I was just in my regular Bible reading, I came across this once again that God said, this is the message for CMI in October. And so this was back in like May and June. And so this has kind of been uh, in the slow cooker. It's been, it's been stirring within me for, for four months now. And so uh, I'm excited to bring it out for the first time. And uh, this is something that as I've listened to Pastor Dale Yurton, as I've listened to every session, there's almost been a theme, almost like a thread that's run through everything so far. And I knew what I was going to speak, and I knew it was right in line with everything that's gone forth so far. And so if you guys have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to encourage you guys to open it to Ezra chapter 3. That's where we're going. Who preaches from Ezra? That's what I thought. Ezra chapter 3. I know that we're all ministers here, and we 
have, a, 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 I'm sure, a great, robust history of the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. But as you're turning there, I thought we would do just a quick recap. Uh, God looks at the earth. He says, I don't have any people for myself. Adam had already sinned, but there's this man named Abraham. So God goes to Abraham and says, I want some people of my own. Your descendants are going to be my people. And Abraham, of course, said, I don't have any kids. And God said, that's all right. I'll take care of that. Miracles happened. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. We know he had 12 sons. They became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those boys was named Joseph. They sold Joseph, remember, they didn't like him. He had the coat of many colors, into Egypt. Egypt. And in Egypt, he was a slave, but God was with him, and God moved him up until he was in a place of power in Egypt. And when a nationwide famine happened, all of the Israelites, all the sons of Israel, God's chosen people, moved to Egypt and were saved because of Joseph and his position. Now, through time, hundreds of years passed by, and the Israelites, who were still living in Egypt, became slaves to the Egyptians, until one day they said, God, this is no good. The slave labor laws here are not good. And so they were crying out, saying, God, we are oppressed. Come and save us. And God heard their prayer, and God sent them a deliverer. He sent them Moses. And so Moses comes on the scene, and we're going to take a real long story and make it short. He said, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And eventually God uh, allowed that to happen, and Pharaoh said, okay, you're out of here. And so they, they, they take off, and so Moses gets to the Red Sea. It's a big miracle. The water separates, and they're crossing over, and they're headed toward the promised land. And God is with them. There's this fire cloud that's going before them, cloud by day, fire by night, and they are on their way to God's promised land. But somehow or another, in that wilderness time, in transition from, from where they were to where God wanted them to be, they felt like there was a delay in the promise, and they began to get nostalgic about where they came from. And they began to look back at Egypt and say, you know what, that was pretty good back there. They, they, they actually didn't remember the past very correctly. And they began to long for things that weren't good, and their heart turned away from God. And in that process of them looking back and them doing their own thing, God said, this generation, you are not going to inherit the promised land, but my promise will remain true with your children. And so that entire generation had to pass. We all remember. And Moses, the leader, had to pass as well. But then Joshua was raised up, and Joshua was the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. They walked into the Jordan River, and it stood up. They were all circumcised. Then they began to take the land and eventually they settled into the land that God had for them. I mean, it's an exciting story. They're where they're supposed to be, finally. Their hearts are with the Lord, and they are settled, and the, the land is flowing with milk and honey. But then their hearts turned away from God. They began to intermarry with other nations, and they began to love things that they were never intended to love. And so God wanted to turn their heart back to him, because that's what he wants, right? And so he sent judges to try to help turn their heart back to him. And that was met with mild success. Eventually, the people were like, we want a king. We want a king like everybody else. And so God said, all right, here's Saul. This wasn't very good, but we're going to do this. And so we, we began a new era in which kings were used, and God wanted to speak through the government leadership to help the nations follow the Lord. And that wasn't very good either. But in that time of kings, we had Saul, but then David came on the scene, and David was a man after God's own heart. And there was something special about David, because he really loved the God. And so when he looked at the Israelites' history, he said, you know, God, you've always lived in a tent. We've always, you've moved with us, but now that we are here, where you want us to be, why don't we build a temple to honor your name? 
And his heart was after God's heart. And God said, that is good. But you're a man of war. And it's not going to be you who fulfills it, but your son. And so after David passed and Solomon came to power, Solomon, a man of great wisdom in a time of economic success, spared no expense in building a temple to Jehovah God. And it was immaculate. They talk about silver was worth nothing in that day because there was so much gold. Everything was overlaid in gold. And not only that, they had superior craftsmen that were in that season that, that used the finest materials to produce the first temple that ever existed for God. It was an exciting time. Now, of course, it wasn't long. It was actually Solomon's son that divided the kingdom. All of a sudden, people's hearts are turned away from God. God begins to send prophets, and these prophets are speaking to the kings, and they're trying to turn their hearts back. But eventually, we get to this place where God says, you know what? Nothing I've tried is really turning their hearts back. We tried the judges. We tried the kings. We tried the prophets. You know, I think that my people need to experience what they experienced in Egypt again. They need to be in oppression. And Daniel prophesied it's going to be 70 years of exile. And Babylon, as you guys all know, came and took over and made the Israelites their slaves. And once again, God's always right. In that time of oppression, they cried out to God again. And so when we get to the book of Ezra, we're at the end of this time of exile, at this time of slavery, and they are, are opening themselves to God once again. And they're saying, God, what do you want? And so there's a king by the name of Cyrus of Persia who comes up and he issues an edict that says that all of those Israelites who had been removed from their homeland were allowed to return. They were allowed to go back to where they were. But the Israelites said, there's no comfort in us going back home if there's not a symbol of God's presence being with us. And so the first order of business was, we need to rebuild the temple. So the 70 years of exile was about 20 years in that the, the temple that Solomon had created, that he had built, was destroyed. And so we have, all of a sudden, uh, this movement back to the homeland with one mission in mind, and that is to rebuild the house of God. So let's pick this up, Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord." Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen and the temple of God. Now, as we read this, a lot of times I just get caught up on the names and the words, and then we just kind of keep reading. But let's slow down and look at this. Zerubbabel, uh, later, this temple is going to be known as Zerubbabel's temple. Uh, it's the one that he's building, but check this out. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek. we got these two guys. And the rest of their brothers, the priests and Levites, and all who came from captivity, began to work on this. They're all focused on working on this, but verse 9, it's interesting. Then Jeshua, we have a father with his sons, and Jeshua, with his brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad. If we're not careful, we miss this. 
that the rebuilding of the temple was an intergenerational ministry. It wasn't just one generation. It wasn't just those who remembered the temple who are rebuilding. No, no, they're getting everybody involved. There is fathers and there are sons working together. The uncles are showing up. We have intergenerational ministry with one focus, one mission. Everybody is saying, we're going to rebuild the house of God. And there was unity among the people. It wasn't a division of ages. And in fact, you see that they began to give authority to those who were 20 years of age and older. So it wasn't just a, a top-down leadership that you had to be a certain age. No, if you're 20 years old, you're able to oversee other people. You're able to oversee other generations and move us forward because we are united in purpose and united in focus. This is a big deal. So we get to verse 10, and this is really exciting times for them. They've been in exile. They've been separated from their homeland, but now they're here, and they've been working on the temple. And so verse 10 says, Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. It's not done. We're in progress. When the, the foundation of the temple of the Lord uh, was completed, the priests, they stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, they were ready to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. These are exciting times. And so they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Can you believe it? The temple is being rebuilt. This is so exciting. Get the symbols. Get dressed. We're celebrating. God is with us again, and we are moving in the passion and the direction that he wants, and we've been doing it together, all of us. And so this was a time of great joy, and so all the people shouted with a great shout, praise God, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid, and this is where the story should end, because it's a win, yes, yes, this is so good, and everybody went home, and they lived happily ever after, but this is the Bible, and it's so real life. Verse 12, depending on your translation, it might say but or yet, oh, there's something we have to add to the story. We have this great shouting and joy. Yet, yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of their father's households, it, it was the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept. They, they wept with a loud voice because the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes. They, they, they wept while many shouted aloud for joy. Can you picture this? You have men as young as 20 years old who've never seen the temple celebrating and worshiping, but, but there's, it doesn't say all the priests, Levites, and the old men. It just says many. It's not a few. It's not all, but, but it's many that as this shout raises up, there's old men who are weeping and not weeping quietly. It's not just to themselves. It's loud, wailing. So that the people, they could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people, they shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard from far away. What an interesting picture we have in our head of old men weeping during a time of rejoicing 
and young men wondering, why are they weeping? God, we thank you this morning for your scriptures. We recognize that they are inspired, and today we are looking to them to teach us, to encourage us in the assignment, God, that you have called us to. And so, Lord, as Pastor Dale Yurton talked about last night about vision and passion, Lord, I ask that you would give that to us for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you the one big point. I think that there's personal revelation anytime that the word of God goes forth. There's something personal for you to get that applies to your situation and where you're at. But for us, we are a body. We are a corporate gathering here. I think that there is a revelation for us as a group. And so I'm going to let you work out the personal stuff between you and God. But this is the message for all of us. And that is this. As a Christian, your God-filled past will either fuel faith or it will fuel nostalgia. We're not talking about non-Christians here. We're talking about as a Christian. And what we're looking at is your God-filled past. We're not looking at the part of your past in which God was absent. We're, we're saying when you look back at your past, the moments that God was fully present, that God was moving, those moments in which you know it was God who was present, those moments will either fuel today, faith, or it will fuel nostalgia. Now, what is nostalgia? Let's define that. It is a sentimental longing. It's something like I'm longing for the past or a wistful affection. If you're like me, I didn't know how to define wistful, so I looked it up too. And so wistful says this, that this is having or showing a feeling of vague or regretful longing. See, when we think back in our lives, every one of us in this room has seen God do something great. Maybe it was in your salvation. Maybe it was in how you got into ministry. Maybe there's no way that you should be pastoring the church that you are, that that, that church plant should have succeeded, or that that board should have ever voted you in, but God has moved. We think sometimes about uh, the supernatural and the spiritual manifestations, and we've seen tongues and interpretations and healings, and we know that God was present and moving. And when we think about that, that is in our past we will end up letting that either feel faith that our God is awesome and can do that today, or we'll let that feel that, man, I wish it was like that again. And there's a difference between the two. As we look at these older ministers that are in this passage, the Levites, the priests, the head of the household, these older men, I don't want us to think that it's a stereotype that all old men think this. No, it just said many. That means that there was old men who were shouting for joy as well. But this many, I think we have something to learn from. I want to give you some quick points here. Your outlook on the past will either limit or liberate your ministry. Your outlook on the past will either limit or liberate your ministry. See, when we look at our past, the problem is, is that we often get caught up on what happened instead of who made it happen. I think about what, uh, what Pastor JP was talking about this morning. And there's this the spectacle, and we remember the spectacle. 
and we forget that God is wanting to move in the ordinary. Well, we get caught up in what is happening as opposed to who is making it happen. And our outlook on those events, limit us or liberate us in ministry? Here's the thing. The greatest threat to your future success is your current or past success. We have this human tendency. We want God to show up the same way as he did last time. And because we have this kind of unspoken desire that that's what we want, we are often in danger of missing the new things that God is currently doing. Because we were looking for how he did it last time. Our theme has kind of been, you know, Lord, show us your glory. And and, and like JP said, it's not that he isn't revealing himself. It's that we're not perceiving it. What if we make this request to God, show us your glory? And he says, I am. You're, You're just not seeing it. Because you're looking for something that I've done in the past, but I'm doing something new. I understand you are like the old priest, and you remember what the temple used to look like. And it was magnificent, and it was great, and God was involved in Solomon's temple, but we're doing something new now, and God is with us now. But because they could not see Zerubbabel's temple from the eyes of faith, they saw it from the eyes of nostalgia, they wept. You guys, are you getting this? This is so big, and it's, it's so subtle in all that we do. It is un, unhealthy for us to have an all-consuming nostalgia of past experiences because we'll be burdened by the fact that they will never come again. And as soon as you believe that your best days are in the past, you will begin to live without a future. I'll put it this way. When you keep the spotlight of your attention on the past, you will always have a dim future. We need to learn to let our past fuel our faith and our future. As we properly look at our past, our faith should be increased because we know who God is. Our gratitude should increase out of thanksgiving for what God has done. As we look at our past, we should continue to have a spirit and an attitude of repentance. Because if we ever forget what we're saved from, we will take God's grace for granted. And when we properly see our past, the way that God intends, there will be understanding for us. The past is a great reservoir of knowledge and wisdom. Where else can we learn anything? We can't learn from the future. It hasn't happened yet. We try to learn from the present. By the time we study it, it is the past. The past is where we learn all things. What is your perspective on the past? We need to recognize that God has up-to-date plans for every setting. No matter what season of ministry you're in, no matter what you're looking at, God has up-to-date plans for you. It's kind of like on your computer. Every now and then you need to do the update. It doesn't run very well. There's some security breakdowns that'll happen if you don't update. Update your computer. And the update's never fun, is it? Especially those of you who are still working on a PC computer. 
You just see a little dial spinning. It's the eternal circle of death. And you're like, is it ever going to finish? <laughs> well, I'm waiting for my computer to restart. Updating takes time, but it's worth it. It was already said in this conference, we serve a God who says that the latter days will be better than the former days. The question is, is do we really believe that? Do you really believe the best is yet to come? So specifically for us licensed and ordained ministers, how do we apply this? Three ways. Number one, we need to lead by faith. Our past should not hold us back, but it should help align us to the future that God has in mind. The opposite of walking by faith is walking by sight. How many decisions do we make on a daily basis that are based upon what we have seen? How many decisions in ministry and leadership do we make based upon what God's already done? Are we leading by faith or are we leading by sight? It's easy. As leaders, it's our job to lead people into the uncertain. When Moses left Egypt, you've not been this way before. And Joshua led him into the promised land. Well, you ain't been this way before. There's an uncertainty there. But the confidence isn't in the plan. The confidence is in the guide, which is our Heavenly Father. And here's what's interesting. As I studied this passage in Ezra, so there's some other books of the Bible that speak to this era. And in Haggai 2, verse 9, after the temple is completed, it is prophesied that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. That the temple that Zerubbabel was building, that the old men were weeping over, the glory will be greater there than it was in Solomon's day. Oh, if we can only see things from the perspective of faith. Number two, how do we apply this? We need to celebrate the process. I love in the book of Ezra that they did not just celebrate when it was completed. They got the foundation laid. They said, let's stop. We're not even done, but we're going to celebrate. And in our American world, we wait until everything's done. We celebrate the Olympians who get the gold medal, but we don't celebrate the process and the years and the work it took for them to get there. We just like to, to talk about Simone Biles being the best gymnast of all time. But, but there's been years in training, and we don't celebrate the process but in the church world, we need to celebrate the process. When we help people come to know Christ, when we see transformation, celebrate the process. We understand that we're not where God wants us yet, but, but while I'm here, I'm not where I used to be. We must celebrate the process. Don't despise small beginnings. And what gets rewarded tends to get repeated. Number three, how do we apply this? We need to create an intergenerational ministry. And no matter where you're at, like Pastor Johnny said, you need to have a millennial setting on the table somewhere. Not just to have them on the table to check it off the list that we put them there, but how we work together. Not multi-generations just represented, but intergenerational working together, one mission, one focus. Here's the truth. Intergenerational ministry will lead to longer, more sustainable ministry. You may be able to run faster alone, but you can run farther together. When the Israelites began to rebuild the temple, there was 
a new generation on the scene. And we should never forget that. These 20-year-old men, they, they never knew what it was like to have a temple. They only knew the misery of having no temple. That temple had been destroyed for 50 years. So these old men we're talking about are 60, 70, 80 years old. But everybody younger than that has no idea why they're weeping and doesn't understand the past. And they have not seen God move. They do not have that God-filled past. How important is it for the older generation to help direct them and lead them into how to properly respond to a move of God? Nostalgia is the enemy of faith, tempting us to believe that somehow God was stronger and more powerful in the past than he is today. And I don't know about you, but I never want to stop creating the future in order to relive the past. I thought this message was strong enough, but then I came across Ecclesiastes 7.10, and I'll close with this. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. In the New Living Translation, it says it this way, don't long for the good old days, for this is not wise. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make it come alive to us not just in a spectacular type of way, but Lord, may there be decisions that are made because of your word, because of all the messages that we've heard this week. Lord, there's no doubt that your Holy Spirit has, has a plan for this convention. And Lord, we've been hearing it from night one to today. Lord, may we receive what it is that you're saying and not just have good notes, but Lord, may we make decisions to put this into practice. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your up-to-date plans. And we thank you for your patience with us as we long for things of the past today. Help us to move the spotlight from our past to our future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.